How's everybody doing this morning? Online and here, how's everybody doing this morning? Are you okay? Are you okay? I don't want to speak to a morgue. I'd like to speak to uh, the church today, if you don't mind. And uh, there's just a lot of environments that you go to that feel pretty oppressed, and you can feel pretty depressed by that. And I just want this one to be one where we're hungry, where we're excited, where we're anticipating that God wants to do something in our life. And I want you to know that I love you. I pray for you. And I love the people that are online right now. My daughters are online in their dorm room with a bunch of friends. And I just talked with them 10 minutes before the service. So they're watching in their PJs um, with morning breath and bed head. And uh, so good to have them in line. We dropped them off on Friday. And that's always a strange experience. We had them for six months and they came home from college and then were with us. And it's always a, an awkward sensation as a parent to let them go. If you aren't a parent and haven't gone through that, sometimes you're like, get out of my house. And uh, sometimes you're like, man, that was really precious and it's hard to see them go. Um, but I believe what that song just said, especially when we got into the refrain, into the bridge, that my daughters are empowered by God, that they're called, that they're favored, that they're anointed. I actually have the words um, that, that are up here of that where it talks about being anointed and called and empowered. Do we have those quite yet? I know they're back there looking at them. Um, blessed, called, healed, whole, saved in Jesus' name, highly favored, anointed, filled with his power for the glory of Jesus' name. And uh, I can kind of be a helicopter parent or, you know, I can't be a smother mother, but we got some of those that are here as well. You got to, at some point, they got to leave and cleave and parents have to release and bless. That's green lighting your kids to go forward. They need that. They don't need you to make them feel, feel guilty for going forward or to create some codependency that they need you or don't necessarily know whether to feel guilty that they don't need you. You want to empower them and you want to embattle them to say, when I drop you off, you got all that at your disposal. You got the whole Holy Spirit. You don't, little, little kids that are here today that are with their parents or you have the Holy Spirit. You don't have like a junior high version or an elementary version of the Holy Spirit. You don't get a junior high middle school version or a high school version or a young adult version or a middle-aged version. You get all the Holy Spirit. If you got saved when you were four or five, the whole Holy Spirit came in you that comes in us, right? And we believe that Holy Spirit empowers us and gives us strength and convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment and as our counselor and our comforter and, and we can walk in step with the spirit and our consciences can, can speak to us and God can fill us with all of those things that we're anointed by God and that we're ordained by God and that we're commissioned by God. It's not just people who are in full-time ministry, we're all in full-time ministry. And that's really what I want to talk about today is that somewhere in the church, some disconnect happened that's been really treacherous for the church. It's a travesty and a tragedy that so many people still believe that they come to hear the minister speak and that the minister was called to ministry. 
The Bible says nothing about that. Ministers were the people of God doing ministry and the work of God. They were greenlit. They were empowered. They were believed in in the first century church. They were needed. They were asked to do extraordinary things. Not just the people that got the credit, the apostles and, and the disciples and the people that were called that were, had like a professional sort of ministry, not just professors in college. We're talking about everybody had full access to God. Children had access to God. Jesus would even call them to him and say, unless you have the faith of this little child, you're not gonna see the kingdom of heaven for such belongs to them. The kingdom of God was accessible to all. And he kept saying the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is near. And you have that available to you today. Greenlit is gonna be all about that because it's the best kept secret in the church, in my opinion. And it's the greatest ruse of the enemy spun by Satan as well, that he doesn't want us to know our standing in Christ and our authority and our power and our inheritance, that we're sons and daughters of the most high God with all the rights of adoption as his children, that we are right now seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ, that our dad is the king of kings. He's over all, he owns it all, and we, as his children, have the keys to the kingdom. We have equal opportunity and access to God. There's no VIP pass for like reverends and ministers and people that like go to seminary. No special privilege. We all get the privilege of being sons and daughters and ministers of God. It's probably why the first verse in the Bible when I opened up Acts and I started feeling stirred to ministry that caught my attention that I memorized in college was Acts 4.13. And it's because it reverberated with this idea that God called and recruited and used ordinary people to spread the gospel to the world. It said this, and when the Sanhedrin, that's the religious people that were part of the intelligentsia or academia, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They marveled, they were blown away and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Unschooled, ordinary men. Unschooled is the Greek word idiotes. Idiots and ordinary, just common, everyday people. He called them, he saw something in them. He said, I want you, what, me? Are you talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you, I want you. You follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. You'll do things that make the powerful people marvel and wish they had what you had. And I thought, if God is doing that, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. And I don't think I have the most extraordinary gifts. And I think that's what blew me away because I thought the apostles were like the cream of the crop when I was growing up, like a prodigy of all the protégés and Jesus called them, but that was not the story of the Bible. 
We can forget, or maybe you've never been told that you're called and anointed and ordained and commissioned in the church. Not just the prophets and priests and kings and apostles and pastors or the people with a seminary degree or masters in theology, not just Reverend Jason Holdridge, lead pastor of Impact Church. Woo, I'm not worthy, sign my Bible. It's so crazy what's happened in like a celebrity culture and hero worship, how even pastors, because they have a platform, something about being in a hero worship culture that, that we're made to, to feel like and people think we're different than you are. That's why Paul, I think it was in Acts 14 in Iconium, when people lifted them up, Paul and Barnabas, and they named them gods like Hermes and Zeus, not Herpes and Zeus, but Hermes and Zeus, lifted them up and he's like, no, and they ripped their clothes and then said, we too are human just like you. And the people said, no, you are gods who have come down to us in human form. They ripped their clothes and said, no, not, not us. We're humans just like you. Ordinary unschooled people that God has called to do extraordinary things. Do you want in on that? That's what they were inviting people into. And then all the peasants and all the commoners and all the outcasts finally came coming because it's like, we can get in on this. That's what I want you to feel today. It isn't just gawk and watch somebody and come and be a spectator. You can be a participator in what God's doing now. That's the way it was always supposed to be. It's actually called the priesthood of believers. That's the theological term for it. And you see it on our word wall. You can look at the word wall and be like, I know what all those other words are. What in the world is that? That means God, when he died in the form of Jesus, became the priest once and for all, one and for all, and he became the sacrifice. So no longer did a whole group of millions of people have to be funneled down and log jammed and bottlenecked once a year by one priest that could go to one place for all the people that we all become priests and everybody has permission to come before God with boldness and confidence in their time of need and go right straight into the Holy of Holies into his presence. I don't take that for granted that I'm a priest, I have access to God, and I have everything at my disposal that anybody else has. I got nothing you don't got. And you got nothing I don't got. We got the same Bible, and we got the same spirit, and we got the same power. Greenlit for me means gr being granted permission or authorized or released or unleashed. So many live beneath their intention. And I just wouldn't be who I am today or where I am today if somebody didn't green light me along the way. You don't just wake up and, and get up and start communicating in front of people and you're hitting it out of the park right off the bat. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and I still like lay an egg on several weekends, right? <laughs> But I, I remember the first time somebody actually gave me the opportunity to step up in front of real people and preach. It was horrible. It was atrocious. I, I remember I didn't know how to fill 25 minutes. And in our church, it was a little Baptist church, Southwest Oswego Baptist Church. My pastor, Pastor Pirelli said, you wanna preach on a Sunday night. And Sunday night, 
was kind of the throwaway service. If you didn't grow up with Sunday night, the pastor didn't prepare hard. It wasn't as good. The song leader barely knew the songs. He was taking, you know, suggestions from people. It was like somewhat of a goat rodeo on Sunday night in our church. But this is where people in the Bush League would come in. And it's, it's, if you're in baseball, it would be like, not triple A, it would be like single A and you can get up into the batter's box and just give it a whirl. And so I had a Sunday night and I remember I didn't know if I was going to be able to fill 25 minutes. And so I preached on the whole book of Philippians. And it turns out there's a lot of stuff in Philippians you can talk about for a long time. And I kept talking, even though I had very little to say. And I went over time, so far over time that when I prayed and I got done and I knew it stunk because I look in the second row and there was Rob Smith and he was our song leader that was gonna come up and kind of dismiss the people in a benediction of a song and he was sawing logs out cold on <laughs> Becky Smith's shoulder, his wife. And so I'm walking off, I'm like, can somebody wake Rob up to close this thing? And people were just like, let my people go. Would you please? And you know what? They let me come back and do it again. And they let me come back and do it again. I mean, I think back, people greenlit me throughout my life. Even at work, I remember this, this one time where I've worked on this farm and they, they did vegetables and they did fruit trees and, and they also did Christmas trees. And they got this brand new mower to mow the Christmas trees and I was the one that was knighted to run the new mower. Now back in the 80s, that sort of zero turn mower was like just coming out and that thing was like a miracle. You know, when you're used to this and a clutch, it's like this thing, you're like, this is awesome. <laughs> Especially when you're a teenager, you're like just flipping around and like a hit squirrel, it was awesome. And I remember I was the one that was going to mow the Christmas trees and it was like an $8,000 machine and they pulled it off the cart and it was delivered and all the higher ups in Ontario Orchards were there to watch this thing, you know, for the first time. And they were like, Jay, why don't you take it up and fill it up with gas? And I was like, awesome, go up by the barns and sort of got to the gas tank and I filled it up with gas. And I remember coming down the hill and they're all standing there and some of them are laughing and some of them are like, ah, like this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they're so excited for what I'm about ready to do. And then they were like, look, and I looked behind me, billows of black smoke. I had filled it with diesel. <laughs> Brand new machine. I'm literally destroying it with every second that goes by. And I brought it down and, and Dennis Olette, who was my boss was there. And he was like, what did you do? In fact, he was like, I know exactly what you did, you idiot. I'm like, I'm idiotes. That's a Greek word in the Bible. No. But it's like, yes. You know what I love about it? They bled that out, they cleared it out, they put gas in, and guess who was mowing trees the next day? Me. Dennis is like, I still want you to do it. Just giving permission to people, calling them into things they may not be ready for, have the responsibility to do, but taking a risk on people, that's what Jesus did all the time. In fact, when I think about just a description for Greenlit is people giving responsibility to you and taking a risk on you before you feel ready. I'm sure a ton of you here feel like, I don't know enough about this book to feel ready to be greenlit, to go out and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I don't very well care. 
Because you know what? They didn't even have this Bible when the apostles were going out and just spreading the gospel. They just knew Jesus came, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. They were geeked about that thought, and they just wanted to tell everybody about it. And you have your testimony of how God has changed your life. Just tell somebody about that. Well, I'm not ready. I don't have the right words. They've never had the right words. You got the right passion, though. And if you can get lit ablaze, it doesn't matter if you got the right words. Your story has power. This idea of being greenlit, it's been on my heart for almost two years since I set out and took three classes um, in a cohort called Exponential Cohort. And I thought it was on church planning. It was actually more on church multiplication. But when I got there, I realized it was primarily about the mobilization of everyday people to be commissioned, to go into their worlds, to be everyday missionaries. And they set apart the difference between cultural Christians and everyday missionaries that are green look. They were talking about the priesthood of the believers, people that go into their worlds and use their unique gifts to change the world. And they were asking, we as pastors, are you igniting and detonating in people this permission to do what the Bible says they've been called to do as the church of God? Or is it just gonna be come and see every week? Or is it ever gonna be go and tell? I remember my church growing up, when we'd leave the sanctuary, it was, you are now entering the mission field. How many had that in their church? You are now entering the mission field as you're leaving the building. Like whatever you just did here, stack hands, one, two, three, team. Now go do what we just huddled up and do the plays and execute them. That's the church. That's the church. There's a particular verse that uh, one of the pastors at one of the classes down in Tampa shared. And I know I've read it a bunch of times and I wanna talk about Ephesians one and two and three and four, but not the whole thing, just a verse out of each one to show you the power of the church. But this first one lit me on fire. Paul said this to the church in Ephesus and God placed all things under his feet, that is Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. It's not a building, it's a body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's a pretty big dream. That's laying a pretty heavy mantle on people. You are my church. You are my body, my hands, my feet, my mouth, my hug, my eyes to the world. You bear out my reputation to the world. In fact, I think you are the fullness of me who's going to fill everything in every way. And all of a sudden, that's thinking outside the building and outside the box. You mean you think the church isn't supposed to just get together for one hour every week, once a week, and listen to a dude talk? Yeah, like that's not enough. My dream is you're going to fill every nook and cranny in culture and society in every single way imaginable that you could believe. That's Jesus' dream for who he thinks you are. He thinks you're the fullness of Christ who's gonna fill every place in every single way imaginable. Is that how you wake up in the morning? Today, it's Tuesday morning, 
7.30, taking a shower, wiping the sleepy seeds out of my eyes. God, today you've called me to put up my antenna and today I gotta have my eyes looking to and fro because I need to fill up in every way this world and be your fullness to this world. He has high hopes for us, daring dreams for us. I remember my parents used to say, and maybe your parents used to say this, when they drop us off at someone's house and want us to not be unruly, they would say, be careful how you behave because it is a reflection of us. Anybody remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> be careful how you behave. It's a reflection of the Holdridge name. And at the same time, when we would do something wrong, they'd be like, were you raised in a barn? What, what in the world are you doing? Were you raised in a barn? And it's like, you know, that's a slight against farmers, right? <laughs> um, in fact, Tom, that would be a great shirt. Is that a shirt? I was raised in a barn? Can you make me one of those shirts this week? <laughs> I was raised in a barn, I'm a farmer, you know? But it's this idea, you're a reflection of us, the fullness of the Holdridge family. Make sure you behave the way that is a reflection of the reputation of our family. Not like unruly little ingrates that are just wild crazies, right? See, he's counting on us. And this isn't meant to be oppressive or scary or intimidating, even though the gravitas of this hits us all that he thinks that much of us. But it's supposed to empower us. And it's supposed to really make us feel like God really believes in us. That we can fill every single thing in every single way, all the places in the world to be reached and all the ways it takes to reach them, that we can do it. Do you know that's how much God thinks of you? He believes you can do this. He, he believes the church can be the fullness of God. The church might not believe in God much right now, but God sure as heck fire believes in the church. He does. It's not just a neat idea. It's plan A. And there is no plan B that I've seen in the scriptures that God has. It's the church or bust when it comes to his reputation and presence being incarnated into this world. It's life or death that the church responds and gets this kind of stuff for the world. Because so many people never are gonna go to church or come to church. You can pray all you want. They're only gonna meet God if you, if the church, if us, go to the places in every way possible to serve and to save the world. You will be the only Bible that Jesus reads. You might be the only church anybody ever experiences if you go out and fill every place in every way. This pastor that was talking about this <clears throat> talked about his daughter, her name was Eve. Cool name for a daughter. And he said, my little baby girl Eve grew up in the church and, and uh, was involved in kind of the you know, light of my life sort of a thing. And he said, there was this day she became a teenager and as she became a teenager, she got in the wrong crowd and 
she started getting into to drugs and alcohol and she'd sneak out of the house and we'd bring her back and, and then she'd sneak out and we'd find her in places and bring her back to the house. And there was finally, it happened where she left and she never came back. And he, he just told us as pastors that were sitting there, he says, I haven't seen my daughter for several years. I haven't heard from her. I haven't seen her. I don't know where my Eve is. I don't know if she's dead. I don't know anything about Eve. And my heart just breaks. And he said, I'll tell you, I've been praying that the church gets this concept that they can fill everything in every way because my Eve is never gonna get reached if it's gonna be her going to church. The church is gonna have to find her. And I've been praying, God, wherever Eve is, Lord, please God, awaken the people in that place, in that region, in that town to look for my daughter, to have their eyes up, to not be navel gazing, to look for my daughter, for the church to go out and find my daughter Eve. Could you do that, God? Could the church really be the church? Because my daughter's not gonna go to church. And he said, uh, last week, he said, I got a call from a woman who said she walked into this bathroom and saw this girl on the floor, half naked, strung out, drug paraphernalia all around her, just looked like she was dead. And she said, I found her and I picked her up and I brought her to my house and I nursed her back to health and I asked her who she was and I asked her if she had a contact with anybody and she gave me your name and your number as family and I want you to know, I got your daughter Eve. And I go to this church in this community and he's like, oh my gosh, it's an answer to prayer. The church found my daughter. And he got on the phone with his daughter and he's like, Eve, 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 can, can we meet? Can I see you? And she didn't want to come all the way home, but she said, dad, I'll meet you for coffee. And he says, this afternoon, I'm leaving to go west and I'm going to see my daughter, sit across from my daughter and have coffee with my daughter for the first time in years. And I thought to myself, if that was my daughter, I'd be praying that the church just wouldn't be coming and sitting in pews, listening to a person every week and think that's church. I hope to God they would know they were the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Chapter two of Ephesians, verse 10, Paul goes on and says this about the church, for we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this comes right off the powerful salvation verse. It's not by works that you're saved, it's through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Do you know that he has given you works to do and in advance every week, every day, he prepares those things as God ordained appointments and he hopes you wake up in the morning and you're like, what do you got prepared today for me, God? I got my eyes wide open. What do you want me to do today to fill the world in every way? I wanna do the works that you've prepared in advance for me to do, because I am your masterpiece. The word masterpiece there is the word poema. You're his poem. You are his magnum opus. You are his piece of art. 
You are his masterpiece, his handiwork. And he has uniquely created you to do good works I can't do. And you can't do the good works I can do, and I can't do the good works you are uniquely created as a masterpiece to do. You have a snowflake of a soul, and if you don't do those things he's created for you you to do, they don't get done. Because they're created for you as a masterpiece. If you're in a symphony and, and the guy doesn't show up that's supposed to be playing a certain part in the symphony, you go on with the symphony and you don't have the cello. It isn't like, well, I'll just play the cello. If you don't know how to play the cello, that's a unique instrument that if you're playing like a horn, that's not gonna work. Do they play horns in symphonies? I don't know, trumpets maybe? I just, I love this because sometimes I think we're very alone and and we're not in discipleship relationships where somebody would do what Paul did with Timothy and he'd see something in Timothy and he would lay his hand on Timothy and he'd stir up the gift that's within him, the good works within him. Like that's permission, that's ordination, that's I see something in you and I think God has a plan for you, your life and I lay my hands on you and I ordain you for ministry, young man. And he hasn't given you a spirit of timidity but of a power and love and of a sound mind. Can you imagine really not having a good dad figure and having a spiritual father do that for you? And then all of a sudden it ignites this in in you and excites in you the possibility that God could use little old you to do something for him. I was thinking about this guy, Patrick. You may know him. His name's St. Patrick. You ever celebrated his life before? Oh, come on. Have you ever celebrated his life before? Once a year, got all dressed up in green, drank some green beer, got your four-leaf clover hats on, look all silly by the end of the night, all sloshed and smashed and completely like wasted. What a great way to celebrate a guy who ordained himself to go to Ireland as a missionary and give his life for the gospel. I don't know how we reduced him to green beer, but his whole life was about being green lit. So much so he had nobody to ordain him. He wasn't St. Patrick, he was just Patrick. And so he ordained himself. He laid hands on himself and prayed this prayer before he launched off into Ireland. I, Patrick, a sinner, unlearned, sounds like unschooled, resident in Ireland, declare myself to be a bishop or an overseer. Most assuredly, I believe that what I am, I've received from God. And so I live among barbarians, a stranger in exile for the love of God. He is my witness that this is so. And he's pushed out into ministry. Good job. What are we doing next? This, okay. And he goes beaten, starved, flogged, imprisoned, eventually killed. And now all we can think about is leprechauns and beer and getting wasted and dressing up in green. This is what it was in its purest form. It makes me think of the church, makes me think of Jesus. Somehow the church 
and Jesus have been reduced to songs and a service and a sermon, and then we're done. And in the beginning, it was not so. It was everybody was unleashed and released and felt like even if they were a blind man who just got their sight back, his message was, I once was blind and now I see. I don't know anything else other than that. That's my testimony and I stand by it. Your testimony this weekend might be just this. If you go out, what did you do on Sunday? Actually, you're not gonna believe it. I, I went to a church I haven't gone for a long time and the pastor said this, and uh, I'll tell you, I don't know a whole lot, but I know enough to know this. I felt inspired or I felt like something came alive in me. Well, what else? That's all I know so far. That's my testimony. That could be enough. Just look at that one more time and almost put your name in it. I, Jason, a sinner, unlearned, resident in Lowell, declare myself to be an overseer. That's what a bishop is. Lot to oversee. You have things to oversee. Now, I assuredly believe that what I am, I've received from God, and so I live among Lowellians, which are barbarians. (laughs) A stranger in exile for the love of God, he's my witness that this is so. Could you feel that God has endowed you from on high and endued you with power from on high to be anointed by God and greenlit by God to be called and used for his service, unschooled and ordinary as you may seem. In Ephesians 3, it gets more intense. God says this through Paul. He says, it's his intent. Now we're getting into intention of purpose. Was that now through the what? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This is crazy. He's up in the ante. There's almost a progression. At first, I want you to know you're the church, the fullness of me that fills everything in every way. And I want each one of you to know you're a masterpiece created to do good works, which I'm in advance divinely ordering for you to fulfill each and every day. But now I want you to know this is going to the unseen world as well because I've picked a fight with the enemy and with that unseen realm of the demonic forces and I believe the church. I'm gonna build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Direct quote from Jesus. I picked a fight. I believe that the church needs to know that they're going into the world and they're going to confound and baffle the darkness of the demonic realm in an unprecedented, unparalleled way with the awesomeness and the matchlessness of the wisdom, manifold wisdom of God. I'm banking on the church to do that the ones to make known to the unseen powers of darkness that they're not going to win this war that this thing's in the bag, that they're going down. That's God's intent. That's his intention, that the church will baffle and blow out of the water the heavenly realms. That the demons will quake and shake because the church is alive and well, and they know who they are and whose they are, and they start acting like it. See, The heavenly realms aren't ready for that. What's going on down there? 
I think they believe what Jesus said, that they're the church and the gates of hell aren't gonna prevail against them. Oh, what are we gonna do about that now? Try to not let the word get out. Try to keep that inside of walls every week for an hour. Make the services even better, more inspiring, but don't let the people know this is what the intent of God is. I was thinking about Eve and the intention of evil in Eve's life. It reminds me of Joseph where he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for the good, for the saving of many lives. Like your intention was this, but God had a greater intention to actually save many lives through what you did to me. And God might've wanted to use what was taking place in Eve's life, but God rescued her. And when she came home, her story goes on when she was found and rescued by the church, she came home to Tampa, Florida and starts to rescue other people from the clutches of the enemy. And she commits her life to push back the darkness and to make known to the demonic forces in the heavenly realms that the church will live out its intention and that she'll live with intent and purpose to snatch people from the precipice of death who would commit suicide by throwing themselves off the Skyway Bridge in Tampa, Florida. That was her mission. This was a place where it was very common for people to see a car parked off the side of the road, nobody occupying it because they just were a jumper. Or a bike off to the side of the road. It's actually the most popular place for people to commit suicide this side of like the West. All the way from California over. And she says, I don't want that anymore. And so she wrote a poem. It's called To Grow Up by Eve Ariel Sanders. She wrote this poem, people ask me what I wanna be when I grow up. I wanna sit on the Skyway Bridge and tell jumpers about Jesus because Satan will whisper horror in your ears, breathing life in your fears, tears streaming, lies steaming from the pot left to boil. That pot sits on the edge of the Skyway Bridge, earmuffs cuff the space between your skull and I can feel God trying to break through these walls. Don't fall, little pot, he can turn off that scorching fire. Tired, I see you tire holding on to the Skyway wires asking to be caught. I think someone ought to, daddy's got you. And in my head, I see the already dead passing me on the Skyway Bridge. Empty bikes left propped up against the side. Souls that tried to hide, thinking life's an empty ride. My, 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 my child. I don't want to have to see any more of these parked cars and vacant bikes. bikes. So I'll sit and sleep, drift deep and weep all on that cold, shuddering concrete of this depressed bridge. Maybe my years, my tears, my biggest fears will fill up the ocean below so high that when lost souls cried, tried to die, I'll catch them with my weary waves. Love them for endless days because you see that's all he's ever done for me. And they say you'd pay, but if you could look at it their way and salt water heals wounds, so you'll be better tomorrow, little pot, because tomorrow's another day. Sorrow is the simple way, but he has turned off the stove. Flames lick the empty spot where you once sat, hoping to consume you, but he can move you, save you, redeem you, fill your empty cup. And that's what I wanna be when I grow up. Man, that's why the church has to keep finding Eve.
Ephesians chapter four, we'll end here. This is really the quintessential green lit passage of the Bible. So, so Christ, he actually gifted the church, the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, and they are gifts. They've been gifts in my life. They have these people come into my life that have shaped me and been patient with me and given me chances and taken risks on me and believed in me. I mean, Jesus even needed that. Remember what God said out of the sky two times in his life, Mount of Transfiguration, baptism? He said, this is my beloved son whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We all need that. He says he gives these five groups of people to equip his people for the work of the ministry. They're the ministers doing the ministry. I'm supposed to be equipping you and unleashing you and giving you tools for your tool belt and permission to go out and do the works that he has created in advance for you to do. You see? So the body of Christ might be built up and the world might see that there's hope. I think this is where things have kind of got monkeyed up and where it's kind of got jammed up. Because for some reason, just like St. Patrick turned into drinking beer, the church has turned into coming and listening to a talking head and kind of hearing more information because you don't know how to read this Bible, right? (laughs) This is deep stuff. You got to come here somebody that's gone to school to read this thing. No, you don't. I'm supposed to be working myself out of a job. I'm supposed to almost be feeling insecure that everybody's like doing it better than I am. That they really believe that God believes in them, not just in the pastoral staff. We're here to be equipping the ministers to do the work of the ministry. I love uh, Home Depot's slogan. I don't like Home Depot because I'm not a man. (laughs) But uh, I saw it. You can do it. We can help. And I'm like, that's great because I can't do many manly things. That's just not the works God has called me to do. I've tried to do manly things and it just doesn't work out. And then I call somebody who has the gift of doing those manly things and they do it in about 10 seconds. And I'm like, man, I'm glad for the body of Christ. But I've been called to do some things that you can't do, right? And I love that. And the church has been, we can do it, you can help. Like we're the staff We got all these ministries and programs and things and you can help, you can volunteer and help us. And it's really supposed to be, you can do it. We're here to help you become all God has created you and dreams for you to be. It really is that according to this verse. I had a illustration of this, it was, I had quarantine brain. It's sort of like chemo brain, I think for, for, 
the way that's been described, but in the early days of quarantine, I was cutting wood and, and I was out there and getting a lot done really, really early. And there was this one day I woke up to go out and cut wood and a tree had fallen down over my driveway. So I really needed to cut this, this old white pine that had fallen over in my driveway. And I went out and I started my chainsaw, but I couldn't get it to go because some piece of wood was jammed in the gears. And I, I took it all apart, which is a dangerous thing for me to do because I don't know if I can put it back together, right? So I'm taking it apart and I grab a hammer and I grab a screwdriver and I'm literally trying to get that gear to turn to bust it loose over and over again and I couldn't do it. And I'm like, doggone it. And so I sat there and I grabbed the tree and I tried to move it and it just took me forever to move the tree out of the way because my chainsaw wouldn't work and I couldn't fix it, and I was so ticked, and I didn't want to take it to the mechanic, because that's, that's just not, I just know how that goes. I've gone to the mechanic before, and they're like, did you turn it on? You know, that kind of a dumb bonehead move, and I'm like, they're, I know they're gonna look at it and be like, did you do this, and, and I just don't want the humiliation. Like, I, I, just, I just don't. So I sat there and I tried again to bang on it two days later and I pulled it and it's like, it's stuck. I don't know how I did this. This is gonna cost me all this money. That's probably actually the bigger thing. I don't wanna pay money. And so my chainsaw, my baby, we've done a lot together. We've been through a lot together. This chainsaw, you go like this and you start it up. I haven't started it this morning, but... It goes like that, and then you come, and then, and then it starts going. Now, you, you see how it's not doing anything? And you can, you can try, you can try anything, nothing will get. For two weeks, all I had to do was hit the brake. I, I literally tried to fix it and I was destroying my chainsaw trying to fix it. And all it was was the chain break. And that happens, I've, I have cut wood for years and years and years since I was a kid. I heat my house with wood if you can believe it. And I cut, you know, all this wood. That happens several times every time you're out cutting wood and in my brain it just didn't come. It didn't occur to me. You know when it occurred to me? It was in bed, I was fast asleep, and I was there, and I woke up at three in the morning, and I thought about the break, like it can't be that, it can't be that. In my tidy whities I went out <laughs> to the garage in the middle of the night, turned on the light, grabbed the chainsaw, and did that, and then just moved the chain, and I'm like, oh my word. And at first I wasn't mad, I was just glad that I didn't take it to a mechanic. <laughs> For him to be like, that'll be 50 bucks, you know, something like that. You just wonder if in the church, just a sermon like this is just like, Jason, you idiot. 
just that break, just, just snap the break back and let the people go. Let them rip. Let them know who they are. Let them know whose they are. Start equipping them. Let them know they're ministers to do ministry. And just let it rip. Acts 2 says this, in the last days, this was at Pentecost, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. This is good news. Your sons and your daughters, even if you could believe it. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. We need the old and the young. My servants, so this is classism, wealthy peasants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and I'll show wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below. We will show the manifold wisdom of God. I will pour out my spirit on all people, our sons and daughters, old and young, men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, black and white, Ohio State fans and Michigan fans, <laughs> Republicans and Democrats, all people. Because he said, in Ephesians 1, God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills everything in every way. It's almost so unbelievable. It's too good to be true, and yet it's almost just a click away. If something could just click inside of our heads today, it'd be a game changer. So today... Church, consider yourself greenlit. Yeah. Thank you for believing in us, God. And I know we have to believe in you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. But then in some weird way, just like you're the light of the world, and then you say we're the light of the world, that we now become the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> not to replace you, but to become the fullness of you, to show them the way, to show them the truth, to show them the life. And I pray that all of us will get out of the box, get out of the building and become the body and to know that you've created us with many, many dormant dreams and desires inside of us that you want to uh, catalyze for your kingdom purposes. So would you green light us with the gospel, God? And as we move into the series and learn what it is to, to be that and to do that, would you open up our heart? May we get it for maybe the first time. And uh, boy, that could be pretty awesome for the world. Thank you for your love and your trust and your patience with many of us here. I know me. Thanks for taking risk on me, giving me responsibility way before I was ready and um, for all the people that did that in my life as well. Because if you aren't given a chance to fail, you'll never succeed. So Lord, thank you for letting us fail so that we can feel your pleasure when we succeed in living for you. And I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks for coming today.